five four three two one. I'm John Miglosh for the Wisconsin DMA and the International Society for Strategic Marketing. Um, I talked about I talked about Emily in Paris, okay, and I had never watched it. And I said to my wife, "Hey, let's watch it. It's supposed to be about marketing. You know, when do you get a marketing uh, <laughs> uh, TV show?" Right. And so I didn't have very high expectations, but my wife liked the outfits that that Emily's wearing. And so, you know, it's something you and your and your spouse can watch together. Sorry, that doesn't even make sense. Doesn't even make sense. A dream of beauty. So what do we think? Sexy or sexist? Oh, definitely sexy. I'm asking Emily. It doesn't matter what I think. It matters what your customer thinks. So why not let them make up their own minds? Put the commercial on Twitter with a poll, sexy or sexist. Get a conversation going. Let the world decide and make it part of your campaign. Sexy or sexist? Or maybe both? It's a little controversial. I like it. Hi, Madeline. Don't you ever sleep? No, I don't. I just want to let you know that your social impressions are up 200% since that Twitter poll went live. BuzzFeed and Jezebel linked to it in the States. Fantastic. But a lot of people don't like it. Did you send me over here to increase brand visibility or be liked? Honey, I think you can do both. Okay, so how cool is that, right? That is the answer. She gave the right answer. And you know, I was in an ad agency for a couple of years, and they really weren't into testing. They really didn't want to know. <laughs> they didn't want to split test. They didn't, you know, they were they were okay with, we ran an ad, and things went great. Things went up. Man, that was great. That was good. Then they could win awards. But when it came down to, hey, let's test, let's test one thing against another, Whoa, you know, that was expensive, right? What do you think of that? No, dangerous, right? So, you know, like I said, nice nice outfits. My wife likes that. But what a great, that, that little piece was so great. If more agencies, if more young people thought that way, it doesn't matter what I think. What does the customer think? What an idea. What a concept. No testing. Talbots decided they wanted to go for a new, a new younger market. Stopped the catalog. Quit mailing. Went all digital. Disaster. New owners brought back the catalog. Uh, J. Jill. Same thing. You can't find a picture. I don't think you still can, but you couldn't find a picture of their catalog. Huge catalog operation. We're going to go all digital. Tremendous, disappointing results. That CEO is gone. Eric Nordstrom. They did the same thing. They thought, well, we can stop mailing coupons to our to our customers, to our loyal the loyalty program customers. We'll just do email to them. Nobody came to the store. Didn't work. Could have tested it. Could have seen what the customers think. It's amazing hubris. It's hubris. I know better than my customers. You know, that's, again, the miracle of capitalism. Anytime a business starts to think, I know better than my customers. I'm going to tell my customers what to think. 
<laughs> Danger lurks behind every corner. Okay, so now let's go over here. Here's a Tom Fishburne cartoon. It says, okay, team, I focused grouped our new homepage and 50% thought it would be stronger with a dinosaur that talks and sings, the little kid says. And so, you know, it's two parents and two kids. That means 50% of, of the focus group, which was four people, decided that they would, uh, that, that they would, that they would uh, prefer a purple talking dinosaur. And this is a danger. How big is your sample set once you do the testing? What are you really testing? Who are you really asking? You know, it's classic focus group, you know, legend, where a company calls in their customers and shows them a new line of product, new scarves, let's say. And, and, Everybody talks about the scarves and which ones they think are really nice and which ones they like. <coughs> Excuse me. Then they say, on the way out, you're free to take one of the scarves, any one you want. Just take one that you want. And the, you know, they all did. And the, the actual sales results matched the scarves that were taken not the scarves that were liked in the in the in the focus group conversation human behavior is tricky you know in 2016 Brad Parscale convinced the Trump campaign that they should be selling hats selling signs no one ever did that before he said you know it's a big difference in direct marketing opinions versus orders huge huge Twist. I, and I've written an article that's in my LinkedIn, on my LinkedIn uh, uh, articles, and I think it's highlighted someplace, how direct marketing swung the election. Now, I don't think they're doing it this year. I don't know what they're doing. Um, and Brad isn't there anymore. But in 2016, they actually sold product. And they decided that that was a better indicator of what was going on in swing states than just calling people up and saying, what do you think? Much better right I think so anyway so testing is tricky and this article talks about about making sound data driven decisions I'm not sure there should be a comma there it should be sound data you have to have sound data to make decisions and you know what there's never enough data to make a decision let's just pause here for a second let's go over to this one the Mayo Clinic announced like today that that Google search terms can help forecast COVID-19 hotspots in the U.S. 16 days prior to the first reported cases in some states. And they said people go to Google before they go to their doctor. Easy to identify the hotspots. We could predict the hotspots up to 16 days. It's <laughs> And there's no mention of the Google flu project so we'll go mention it this is like oh yeah that makes sense let's let google do the predictions instead of the cdc well in 2008 here's what we can learn is from wired from the epic failure of google flu trends okay in 2008 google explored the possibility 
claiming they could forecast the flu based on people's searches. This is 12 years ago. Google was just getting going, really. You know, we didn't start metrics on on digital advertising until 2009. Most graphs start there. Okay? A, a paper published in Nature that when people are sick with the flu, many searched for flu-related information on Google, which gave almost instant signals of overall flu prevalence. And... The, they said they could produce accurate estimates of flu prevalence two weeks earlier than the CDC. Well, and then Google flu trends, which was an actual thing. You could go to gft.google.com and, and look at the Google flu trends and where it was going to hit you next, right? And uh, it failed and failed spectacularly. Spectacularly, not just failed. Okay, it failed spectacularly. I'll underline that, spectacularly. Missing at the peak of the 2013 flu season by 140%. Goofy. When Google quietly euthanized the program (laughs) called Google, Google Flu Trends, it turned the poster child of big data into the poster child of the foibles of big data. And I'm not sure the Mayo Clinic even knows. No mention of it. Uh, uh, You know. But Google flu trends failure doesn't erase the value of big data. What it does is highlight big data hubris. Okay? When you've got millions, it performed well for two to three years and then failed significantly and required substantial revision. And it turned out it was dangerous to rely on Google flu trends for any decision-making. For example, Google's algorithm was quite vulnerable to overfitting seasonal terms unrelated to flu, like high school basketball. With millions of search terms being fit into the CDC's data, there, here, this one, there was bound to be, there were bound to be searches that were strongly correlated by pure chance. I've told you this before. Pure chance. You put enough data into a hopper and look for correlations, and most of it, I would say 70-80% of the correlations will be spurious, will be unrelated to causal factors. What do you think of that? The other thing that happened, we'll just talk about this, is Google changed behavior over time. People started, when people started looking up flu, Google would send other people flu symptom, um, offer them flu symptom links. And so they, they magnified and amplified the searches for flu symptoms, even when people didn't have symptoms. Also, because people were watching the Google flu trends, the media could pick it up in your state. Oh, Google says in two weeks we're going to have the flu. You know how 70, 80, 90% of news today is not about the news. It's about what might happen tomorrow keeps them out of trouble. You can't get sued for what you say might happen. You can get sued for saying something that did happen didn't happen. You can get in trouble for that. Okay, so the news picked up and said, oh, the flu is coming. Nice to have you, Mitch. I hope you come back. Uh, the flu is coming, and then people would search for, well, what symptoms does this flu have? And it would amplify it. 
Now let's go back here and just see what this is about. Okay, this is about this is a very complicated article. I'm going to boil it down to a couple sentences. Uh, if you have too small <coughs> sample set, it isn't that your data is bad. Could be absolutely right. Connie Bauer, PhD professor at or at Marquette with tenure, told me I can build. She said I can build a valid customer model with 50 customers as long as they're the right customers. Yeah, that's true. And I, this was, you know, we were pioneering this stuff back in the 90s. And I said, Connie, we've got 14 million customers and we've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of, of orders on any topic you want to look at. We, and we don't have any real difference in cost. This was before anybody knew what big data even looked like. And she just didn't, she didn't grasp the, the power that we had in our hands. <clears throat> but it's not that you don't get valid data with small samples. You could. But it's accidental. You know, sometimes one observation can be right on spot on, and that was part of my thesis. One disconfirmation could easily be enough to topple a theory if it's repeatable. But too small may not be repeatable. That's the danger. So you say, oh, we got a much bigger lift when we put the dog, the owner's dog, on the cover of the catalog. Maybe it wasn't about the owner's dog. Maybe it was about something completely unrelated. You're not always sure what it is right so you can have too much data you know I was in a meeting and we were talking about car data and uh, you know that overall consumers were making this decision and the car executives were saying well what about this size car and what about Seattle does the data hold up there and they wanted to dive into the specificity. And sometimes you can. And sometimes you can't. So too much data gives you too general an answer. And, that, and they wanted a more specific answer. Now you can also have too trivial a test. So, you know, I know companies that tested whether a pink envelope or a green envelope as a, you know, that you put your, you put your response in, which one does better? The impact is so trivial. Or, you know, I was working with Oakley sunglasses, and they they had no response device. And they said, yes, it, we do. Here's There's an 800 number. See, in this paragraph of, of body copy, there's a there's an 800 number. I said, nobody sees it. You know, and I've done many talks about, you know, the, the big things like that you fix. The top, the top things are dumb to test because you know you better have a response device. If you have some track record. That's why human decision-making is more important often than data. Data gives us a clue, but it isn't necessarily repeatable. It could be spurious. It could be uh, too general. You may, not get the, you may not have the theory properly defined, even though you see the cause and effect. Too trivial down here, no good tests. The test, good tests are in the middle. And, it's, and it depends on the context of the test company. And when I started in direct mail, I was told the 51% 5,000 rule, which says that uh, if you get 50 responses, you have, and this is orders, that you have a reasonable confidence interval, I think 95%. Um, so if you expect 1% response to generate uh, 50 orders, then you need to be 
sending out 5,000 pieces. I don't want to make this too complicated. But here's the problem with that. The problem is, if that number is low, it works. If the problem is high, if the response rate is high. So your customers may pull 5% or may pull 10%. There were segments of Cabela's when we started modeling with them that pulled 100%. We got more orders than we sent mailing pieces out. And that led to a big breakthrough for Cabela's. But let's just say you get 10% response. Okay, so then you only need 50, uh, you only need 500 mailing pieces. The problem is, is that your confidence interval the higher that response rate goes, if you keep adjusting the sample size down for that 50 rule, the lower your confidence interval actually is. <clears throat> so better than that concept is probably a minimum test cell size. When we do modeling, uh, you know, if there isn't, the, the model tends to be really good at every model, every methodology for segmentation, tends to spot the, the good customers it idiotically simple. John Worth said, if there's lumps in the soup, anybody can find it. Any idiot can find it. <laughs> it also spots the really dead segments. That's pr It's pretty good at that. You know, They haven't bought from you in five years, and you've been mailing them every month or something. Although, you know, George Mosier, National Business Furniture, he would mail, uh, he would mail customers for 10 years. And, you know, it worked for him. So you, these principles are not, cast in stone. That's what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is that you need enough. Connie says 50 altogether. I'd say 100,000. If you want to look at the individual variations, it's someplace in there. And you can effectively, you know, and if you had to pick, I'd say 5,000 would be a good number to start with. Put 5,000 in each cell. And that's a good rule. Right? And you'll get 50 orders in one, and you'll get 30 in another, or you get 70 in one, and you'll get 30 in another. Well, I hope you enjoyed this little lecture. It's a little more a little more technical than we usually get, but I got a lot of likes, so thanks for that. Have a great day. Like and share. Your friends will know you're smart.